All right. Hey, everybody. It's good to see you. My name is Brian, one of the pastors here at the Summit, and uh, we're continuing Proverbs. We said that Proverbs is like a lens through which we look and we see uh, the most important aspects of our lives clearly and correctly. And uh, Andy kind of already dropped the bomb tonight. What we're going to do, in the words of the uh, famous 1990s 1990s rap group salt and Peppa, uh, we're going to talk about sex, okay? Um, And sex is like a really big topic. You could be talking about a lot of things as you're talking about sex. Uh, Particularly what we're going to talk about tonight is we're going to talk about uh, sexual mistakes, okay? How do we, we're going to try to answer the question, uh, how do we kind of see sexual mistakes clearly and correctly and avoid making them, you know, this week, this month, and in the, in the coming uh, years. Now, uh, before we do this and jump into what Proverbs has to say, let me, let me just go ahead and um, let you know that I know that of anything I could talk about, this is probably the topic that is most off limits. Okay, you come, and, and, and probably by the very nature of you coming, you're at least somewhat open to me maybe speaking a little bit into your life. And, you know, we talk about money, and you're like, okay, you're right. Like, I don't have a budget, I'm in debt, I need help with that. Or we talk about even something personal, like managing your emotions, and you're like, you're right. Like, I don't, you know, people don't really know me, and I don't really trust people. What, what is that tied to? I need help with that. But, I mean, I understand of already kind of what's going through your mind is I say, okay, I'm going to talk about sexual mistakes, and you're like, who the heck do you think you are to speak into my life, okay? So that's what I've been kind of processing all week as we're getting ready to do this. And um, here's kind of how I've uh, made sense of this or wrapped my mind around this is, is I feel like the, the reason it's legitimate for me to talk about this is because anytime anything is kind of this off limits in our lives, it's probably the one thing that most needs to be brought into the light. I'll say that again, okay? Anytime anything is kind of this off limits, that untouchable, that guarded, protected in our lives, it's probably the very thing that needs, most needs to be brought into the light. And I think you would agree with me too. Let me just kind of run a scenario and you tell me what you think you would do. Um, let's say, has anybody ever house sit for somebody before? You know, most of us have probably house sit. You know, somebody goes out of town and uh, they're going for a week, and they, they want you to watch their house. And so, what happens before they leave? They invite you to come over to their house and to go on some sort of tour. So, um, you know, they take you around the house, and they're like, "Okay, there's the kitchen. Uh, eat whatever you want. There's the pantry. Eat whatever you want. There's the bedroom. You can sleep in my bed. It won't bother me whatsoever. It's always a little weird, but um, you know, okay, that's the bathroom. Uh, make yourself at home. Now, I want you to imagine you're kind of on this tour, and you look out of the corner of your eye, and down the hallway, um, you see. In the corner, this door that is like double bolted shut and has like planks over it, and like they own a piano, and that's where they've conveniently, you know, placed the piano. And um, you know, what, what, what do we all do in that moment? We're like, well, what's behind that door? You know, and the person's like, well, don't worry about that door. You don't need to look behind that door. Have I showed you the pantry? Have I told you you can eat anything? You'd be like, no, like, that's the one door I need to know about before I stay at your house for a long period of time. Like, is that where you're keeping the bodies? That is the house that I need. I mean, that is the door that is I need to know about. And it's the same way. I mean, we kind of understand anytime anything is that guarded, protected, unapproachable in our lives, it's probably the one thing that we most need to kind of expose and, and bring out into the light. And that's really how I feel about sex and particularly sexual mistakes. I mean, the reason reason I'm talking about this is not because I like to talk about risque topics. It's not because I potentially want to upset some of you. Um, that's really not it whatsoever. I mean, really, I, mean, I, I hope I'm coming off as authentic as I say this. I really do love you. Even if I haven't met you, I really, really do love you. And when I think about sex, particularly sexual mistakes, I mean, nothing inflicts greater pain and sadness and sorrow and shame like sexual mistakes, does it? Nothing does. 
I mean, probably for you, even right now, as I'm talking about this, you can probably think of the moments in your life that have been the hardest for you. I'm talking about the moments where it's like, I'm not sure if I want to go on living. I'm not sure if I'm going to make it. I'm not sure if I do go on living, if I want to go on living. Probably those moments, you can study those, and you can trace the roots down to something connected to love, romance, or sex. I mean, I'm telling you, like, you make a mistake at your job, and it's not a big deal. Maybe you get yelled at by your boss, but it's okay the next day. You make a mistake, like you play in the, the, the kickball league over at City Park, and you make a mistake during one of those games, and like nobody cares. Like the reason they do those games is so people can drink. Like they don't care about winning or losing, okay? <laughs> but like you make, you make a mistake with your sexual life, and I'm telling you, like those are the mistakes that haunt us and impact us for days, months, weeks. I mean, even some of you have grown up in homes where you've seen how sexual mistakes can impact a family for generations, and that burdens me. And it's why I can't just like, when, when most of us are like, nope, nothing to see here. It's totally fine. Move along. Let's talk about something more pleasant. It's, I can't do that. I mean, I, hopefully I have a love for you that's too great just to look the other way. And so tonight we are. We're going to talk about sex and sexual uh, mistakes. But here's the good news is I'm not going to come right at you. I'm not going to come, you know, dropping 10 principles of do's and don'ts. Here's what we're going to do. It's going to be totally non-threatening. All we're going to do is talk about two stories and three principles. That's it, okay? Two stories from the Bible about sexual mistakes and their ramifications, and then three principles, implications for our lives so we don't make uh, the exact same mistakes. Isn't that fun? Doesn't that seem non-threatening and pleasant? And like, aren't you really looking forward to the next half hour? I am. So um, let's do this, okay? Now, we said we're going to do two stories, and the first story we're going to tell is the story of Solomon, okay? The story of Solomon. This story is given to humble us. We'll talk about why in a second, but Solomon is the author of this book. We said that Solomon wrote this book of Proverbs, and um, I'll tell you, it's really important for you to understand the story that he came from. Now, I'm going to tell you a story in three chapters to kind of give you some categories to think about this. Um, The first is this, is that uh, the first chapter of his life I would call origins. You have to understand Solomon's family of origin. Now, all of us, we came from some sort of family, whatever it is, but that family had a dramatic impact in terms of how we understand uh, sex, love, and romance. And probably some of you are starting to even see this. You know, maybe you've just gotten married. Maybe you're now in a serious relationship relationship. You know, a lot of us are entering into adulthood and we're seeing like, oh, okay, like that thing where my mom always criticized men, like I have a propensity to do the exact same thing. That thing where my dad can't respect women, I have the propensity to do the exact same thing. We, we see how much our family of origins impacts us and it's no different for Solomon. Now, what you need to understand about Solomon's family of origin is it was tremendously jacked up. Okay, it was tremendously dysfunctional. Now, we're talking like so dysfunctional that um, you know, if reality TV existed back then, like, they're having their own show, right? Like, Solomon is potentially the next Honey Boo Boo, um, and you're just, like, looking on this family, and you're like, oh my gosh, like, I can't believe people even live like this. And it all starts with Solomon's dad, David. Many of you have probably heard of David. He's a very famous biblical um, character. He was a great king. He slayed Goliath. But he made terrible sexual mistakes. And really the most famous is when uh, David met Solomon's mom, Bathsheba. Now we're going to have this story up here on the screen. So I just want to read it for you to help you kind of understand what happened and where Solomon came from. Look look at this. It happens, and let me just say this before I even read this. At this time, David is already married. He already has a family. He's he's already got other kids. And here's what happens. 
It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing. And the woman was very beautiful. So he, he's walking down on the roof. He's kind of taking in the scenery. I mean, we do this around Denver all the time. It's so beautiful. You're taking the scenery. He kind of does a double take. He's like, that's a naked woman bathing. Um, you know, you can understand it's a little bit tempting. And you would hope, you know, he's a godly man. He has good boundaries. Um, you know, he runs back inside. He's like, okay, I'm going to flee from this temptation. But look at what he does next. And David sent and inquired about the woman. And one said, is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So he finds out, I mean, not only, um, you know, am I married, but she's married as well. She's married to uh, another uh, man. But, you know, instead of, you know, ending this, verse 4, so David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her. That means that he had sex with her, and now she had been purifying herself from uncleanness. Uh, then she returned to her house, and the woman conceived, and she sent and told David, I am pregnant. And uh, she was pregnant. That baby that she was pregnant with uh, was baby Solomon. This was his family of origin. So that's where he came from. Now, chapter 2 in his life is what we would call dysfunction. Chapter 2 would be dysfunction. Now, because of his uh, dad's mistakes, Solomon grew up in a tremendously broken, dysfunctional home. Many of you know exactly what this is like. Maybe you grew up in a home um, where your parents divorced. Maybe you grew up in a home where one of your parents or both of your parents had an affair, and you know firsthand the kind of tension, frustration, friction, sadness that brings into the home. Solomon would be able to relate with you uh, incredibly, incredibly well. Now, here's the thing. Let Let me just even, before we just kind of say this blanket statement. Let me just give you even like a particular example of maybe the dysfunction that he experienced growing up. Um, you know, right after all this goes down, his dad, David, kind of has a problem. And the problem is like, what do I do about Bathsheba's husband? Like she's married. Um, now she's pregnant. The kind of catch is her husband is like away at war. So, she, you know, she can't be like, oh, surprise, like the baby's yours. Like he's going to come back from war and he is going to know exactly what happened. So he's like, okay, what is it that I do about Bathsheba's husband? And he's, you know, runs through all the options and he's a wise king. And he concludes like the most rational thing for me to do, the best course of action is for me to murder him. That's what he does. Like he murders this guy. Now you can imagine, like if you grew up in a home where your dad murdered the first husband of your mom, um, there's a little bit of tension and frustration and friction there, right? Like, you can kind of understand how there would be uh, kind of awkwardness around the dinner table, and when you're like, you know, Bathsheba, like, I wish she wouldn't spend so much money on groceries, and does he always have to buy organic? She can just fire back, well, like, you murdered my first husband. I don't want to hear any more. I don't want to hear any more about it. So there's all this sort of dysfunction and frustration and friction that they're growing up within in terms of his family. Now, let me ask you this question. Um, you've got origins, you've got dysfunction. What would you expect the third chapter of this guy's life to be? I mean, he's grown up in this environment. It, I mean, for me, if I'm writing kind of the next part of his story, here's what I'm thinking. I'm thinking, and Solomon, because he grew up in a family of dysfunction and saw the type of pain and heartbreak that sexual misconduct uh, presents, because of that, he fled from making poor sexual mistakes, and uh, he lived happily ever after and made all sorts of wise decisions. But that's not what he did. In fact, the third chapter of Solomon's life, after he's grown up and after he's older, it is, he doesn't cease it. It's not cessation. It is replication. Chapter 3 of his life is replication. And I want to read you a passage that comes later in his life. Look at what it says. It says, Now King Solomon loved many foreign women, along with the daughter of Pharaoh, Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite, Sidonian, Hittite women, from the nations concerning which the Lord had said to the people of Israel, You shall not enter into marriage with them, neither shall they with you, for surely they will turn away your heart. 
heart after their gods. And what does it say next? Solomon clung to these in love. Despite knowing all the mistakes, or despite knowing all the heartbreak that sexual mistakes brings, despite knowing all the dysfunction that sexual mistakes brings, despite knowing all of the tension and frustration and chaos that sexual mistakes brings, what does Solomon do? He grows up right around it, and he does the exact same thing. Now, what's kind of the moral of the story? Why are we telling this story first? Because here's the deal, is that I, look, if you're the person who is, I'm getting ready to talk about sexual mistakes, and you're like, okay, so you're going to speak into the way I handle my sex, um, that's a really personal area of my life, and I know what I want, and I know what makes me happy, and I know what my heart wants, and I would never make a mistake that would lead to considerable harm. And if there's one area of my life that I have figured out, it is exactly this area. So thanks, but no thanks. Um, you know, I'll come back when I need help. On some, I've got this under control. Made me feel like that about their sex life. I got this completely under control. Here, if you feel like that, I feel like that. I resonate with that. But here's the deal: is when I see a story like this, and I see a man who the Bible describes as being incredibly wise, making this kind of sexual mistake. When I see a man that the Bible describes as one of the greatest leaders who ever led making this kind of sexual mistake, when I see a man who grew up and saw firsthand the consequences of what these sexual mistakes would bring, and then he does the exact same thing. I mean, here's what, here's what I conclude, at least. I think it's the most log- logical con- conclusion to come to, is that maybe we, as the human race, maybe us as men and us as women don't have as much control over our sexual well-being as we've always thought. I mean, I haven't met anybody who's like, you know what, I can't wait to make a major sexual mistake that hurts myself and everybody that I love for a long period. I I haven't met anybody like that on their wedding day. I've done a number of weddings. But we do, don't we? And why is that? I think it's because, like, we're proud, we're arrogant. And when we see a story like this, it should create in us humility to say, okay, maybe I don't have this figured out. Maybe I do need someone or something outside of me to speak into this. Maybe I need the wisdom of God to break into this area of my life to help me handle my sexuality with excellence. Instead of just saying, I've got it covered and nothing to see here and don't unlock that door and I'm going to be fine and it's always somebody else who would make that kind of mistake, not me. Now, I said we're getting two stories, okay? Now, you have to understand that story in order for us to get our second story. Now, the second story is what we'll call the young man story. This comes from Proverbs 7 that we just read. And so I'd encourage you, if, if you had your, you just closed your Bible from when we just read, I would open it up because we're going to go through this whole story. And it's, it's just really helpful for you to read along um, to see this firsthand. Um, but it's really helpful you kind of understand Solomon's story for you to understand this young man's story. Basically, what happens is, you know, we understand Solomon's story. It humbles us. And then uh, this kind of young man's story is presented, and it helps us. It, you know, we're humble now. We're like, okay, I could make a serious sexual mistake. Help me not do that. That's exactly why the story exists, to help us not make these types of mistakes. Now, I want to walk you through this story as well. Uh, we'll do it in three chapters to kind of help give you some categories. And we'll start in verse 6, okay? We'll start in verse 6. Here's chapter 1. We'll call it the temptation, okay? The, the scene is set. Verse 6, for at the window of my house, I looked out through my lattice 
And I've seen among the simple, I've perceived among the youths, a young man lacking sense, passing along the street near her corner, taking the road to her house in the twilight, in the evening, at the time of night and darkness. And behold, the woman meets him, dressed as a prostitute, wily of heart. So the scene is this, is an old man is looking out from his house at his window, and it's late at night, and he sees this young man walk into this house or walk up to this house, and he's met out front of the house by a very young, attractive lady who's dressed very seductively and provocatively, and instantly, we all kind of know where this is headed, right? I mean, we're not like, man, I wonder what's going to happen next. Like, are they going to watch a movie? Like, are they going to play Go Fish? Like, I think we all kind of, like, <laughs> we all know where this is, this is headed, don't we? Now, here's the funny thing, is that while we all know where this is headed from the outside, side, when you're in the moment, it's unbelievably harmless. I think this is the reason that Solomon is telling us, is that, is that from the outside, everybody can kind of see the path that you're headed on when you're about to make a major sexual mistake. But if you're the one who's about to make it, when you're in that moment and this thing first gets started, when you start walking down that path, what's so dangerous about it is it's all unbelievably harmless, isn't it? So like, here, here's what's not going to happen this week. If you're married, you are not going to uh, bump into a complete stranger on the 16th Street Mall and be like, oh my gosh, you're so beautiful. We should, you know, uh, hook up and uh, ruin our marriages. Like, nobody spontaneously just does that in the middle of day. Like, that's not happening Wednesday during your work hour. So how does, like, something like adultery begin? Like, how do you sleep with somebody who's not your wife? Well, I mean, it begins unbelievably harmlessly. It begins by, you know, finding one of your coworkers kind of unusually attractive and unusually kind of uh, fun to talk to, and then, you know, it's like, Pretty soon, you know, maybe we could just kind of open up about how unsatisfied we are in our current relationships. We won't, you know, we won't get physical. I mean, we'll just have lunch. I mean, in that moment, like, it's unbelievably harmless, even when you're looking at it, even when you're in the moment. It's unbelievably harmless when it's like you're feeling unsatisfied in your current relationship, and all of a sudden it's like, you know what? Like, I'm bored. I should, like, Facebook stalk my exes. And, like, man, like, he still looks really good. And like, I wonder how he's doing. Like, I, you know, not in any weird kind of like intimate way. I just wonder like what's going on and how's life. And maybe I should, you know, I probably shouldn't put it on the Facebook wall. I don't want everybody to see. I'll just direct message so it can be, you know, private. I don't, you know, I don't want to raise any flags or suspicion. I mean, like nobody would look at that and be like, that is absolutely intrinsically evil. And probably this guy in this moment is feeling this exact same thing. If you ran down, you'd be like, you shouldn't be talking to her. He'd be like, come on, you prudes. Like, come on, like, I'm just talking to her. I'm just having a conversation. What's the big deal? And when you're in the moment, I mean, it all feels very harmless. But when we're on the outside, we can see the path that people are walking down. And it starts very harmless. So that's just very important for you to understand. I mean, let's get very practical. As you're thinking about the potential of you making these same mistakes, it's just the awareness that it does. It doesn't start very threatening. It starts very harmless. Now, let me start with, look at the next part. Chapter two is this, is what we would call the justification the justification. Now, here's what happens next in the story as well as in our lives. When we're getting ready to make a major sexual mistake, very rarely do we just kind of like jump right into it. Um, usually there's something inside us that says, um, I shouldn't be doing this. Have you ever felt that before? You know, I shouldn't be 
doing this. And all of a sudden, there's a response to that comment. Maybe it's an internal dialogue. Maybe it's an external dialogue with the person that you're potentially going to do this with. But all of a sudden, justification starts to arise. You start hearing a voice in response telling you why it's not that big of a deal, why it'll really make you happy, why it'll make, you know, it'll give your heart exactly what it wants. And that's exactly what happens in this story. In fact, this woman, you know, she can kind of start reading that this young man is getting hesitant, and she starts peppering him with justifications of why he should follow through. So let me just give you the three that she offers. The first she says is God wants this. God wants this. Look at verse 13. She seizes him and kisses him. And with bold face, she says to him, I had to offer sacrifices and today I have paid my vows. Now we we don't typically talk like, you know, I mean, when you're doing sexy talk, you're not talking about like sacrifices and vows, right? But in those days, like there was this major, is everybody going to be able to pay attention to me now and respect me now? Okay, come back. Um, like, <laughs> this is a ridiculous topic for me to talk about. Um, <laughs> I really care. Okay, let's keep going. Um, now, back, okay, you know, we don't talk about sacrifices and vows, but here's what she's saying to him. What she's saying to him is basically, I have gone through the correct religious rituals to ensure that God is for us. God has now blessed the broken road that has led you straight to me. That's, that's what she's saying. That's what she's saying to him. And what she's saying is even if he's not okay with it, even if he's not okay with it, the, the good news is he will forgive us. Now we do this, don't we? Uh, we tend to bring God, even if we're not very religious or spiritual, we tend to bring God into our romantic decisions. Look at this in romantic comedies. Look at this in romantic music, which is basically every song in the top 100. God has brought in all the time to kind of spiritually justify us making very bad decisions. And here's the deal. Like once you've convinced yourself that God wants you to do this, there's kind of no convincing you otherwise. It doesn't matter what the Bible says. It doesn't matter what your pastors say. It doesn't matter what your friends say, what your family says. If you've been able to kind of convince yourself, this is what God wants for me to be happy. And this is what will make me happy. Then, I mean, you're going to, you're going to follow through with it. And so she drops the big one on the very front end. The second thing she says to her, to him is, you're going to enjoy this, okay? Um, Look at verses 15, uh, 15 through 18. She says this next. So now I've come out to meet you, to seek you eagerly, and I have found you. I have spread my couch with coverings, colored linens from Egyptian linen. I have perfumed my bed with myrrh, aloes, and cinnamon. Come, let us take our fill of love till morning. Let us delight ourselves with love. Now, Again, we don't really talk this way now, but, but basically, like, what you're getting here, all this talk about colored linens, Egyptian linen, perfumes, myrrh, aloes, cinnamon, I mean, like, she's, she's talking dirty to him. Like, that's what's going on, and she is Hebraically talking dirty to him. She is doing, uh, you know, she's basically just saying, look, even if God's not okay with this, you're going to enjoy this so much that you're going to be glad you did it. Like, we've... We, we, we do this as well, right? We're, we're, we put ourselves in positions where it's like, okay, I know I'm going to regret this. I know this isn't going to go well. But in the moment, it's going gonna, it's gonna to be worth it. It's, it's going to feel so good that it is going to be absolutely uh, worth it. You know, again, um, you know, my mind's telling me no, but my body is telling me yes, <laughs> to quote R. Kelly. Um, number three, she says this, you'll get away with this. So you're not just, you'll enjoy, not just, not just God's for this, not just you'll enjoy this, but uh, you'll get away with this. Verse 19, for my husband is not at home. He has gone on a long journey. He took a bag of money with him. At full moon, he will come home. With much seductive speech, she persuades him. With her smooth talk, she compels him. And she says here, here's the really good news is you're going to get away with it. 
Nobody's going to know. It's going to be your secret. It's going to be our secret. Our husband's away. He'll never find out. The town will never find out. You're going to get away with it. And again, this is a big justification for us doing things sexually that we know that we shouldn't do. It's kind of this uh, a motivation that's given to say, this will be my secret. This will be our secret. Uh, I, you know, my friends won't find out. My city group won't find out. My church won't find out. My spouse won't find out. My significant other won't find out. I won't tell anybody. It'll be our secret. I'll delete the browser history. I mean, I, I can keep... We use the same justification today. Now, this brings us then to chapter 3. All of this, there's this temptation, there's this hesitancy, and this comes this justification, and then here comes the consequences. This starts in verse 22. Before I read this, I mean, this is, this is just one of those scenes from the Bible that is so vivid. I mean, it is terrifying to me. It should be terrifying to all of us. I mean, you were getting here, I mean, it's, this is like watching a horror movie, then all of a sudden somebody jumps out from out of nowhere and scares you to death. Look at verse 22. All this is going well, all this seems very sexual, very awesome, very incredible. Verse 22, all at once he follows her. So he gives in, right? He gives in. And what does it say? As an ox goes to the slaughter, or as a stag, that's a deer, is caught fast till an arrow pierces its liver, as a bird rushes into a snare, he does not know that it will cost him his life. So this scene for him and for us is really the same, where we enter into something that's fairly harmless. We see it no longer being harmless, but in those moments that we start feeling guilty or hesitant, we're able to talk ourselves or somebody's able to talk us into following through. And then when we follow through, what is it described as? As an ox goes to the slaughter. It is a very vivid image. I know very few of you, know, we live in the city, so very few of you know what life is like on the farm, but at least we know this. How is an ox led to the slaughter? Does the farmer come out with a giant ax and is like, hey, get over here, ox. I want to kill you. I want to eat you for dinner. You think the farmer does that? No. I mean, at least an ox knows what that means. How does he lead the ox to the slaughter? By offering maybe a bucket of feed to say, I mean, this is going to be the time of your life. He does not know that it will cost him his life. The acts false. And I'll tell you, the moral of this story, I mean, the reason we see this story is not, you know, okay, we've been kind of awakened then to say, okay, I'm capable of doing this, and now we're kind of seeing, okay, like, how do I navigate this? I mean, what you're seeing in the midst of this story is just how easy. I mean, that we are, I mean, isn't this crazy? Like, you would think, that in your life, the one person who is most strongly advocating for your personal happiness is you, right? Like, doesn't that make sense that for me, I am the one person in my life who would be most strongly working and advocating for my own personal happiness. But you know what this says? It says sometimes we are unbelievably good salesmen and saleswomen to convince ourselves of making unbelievably destructive decisions. As an ox is led to the slaughter, he does not know that it will cost him his very life. And it creates within us then, not just this humility, but this need then to say, okay, I need to step outside and I need to have a plan and awareness so that I don't get caught in this exact sort of position. Now, that's what then we've given you these two stories. And now um, hopefully these have built a need for you to the point that you say, okay, like I'm okay. I'm having a few implications or principles uh, challenge to me um, in order to ensure that I don't replicate the same sort of uh, mistake or behavior in my own life. And so let me, uh, let me offer those to you. 
So let me just give you three principles or implications. The first is this, is that as you're thinking about kind of sexual mistakes, avoiding sexual mistakes, the best time for boundaries is now, okay? The best time for boundaries is now. Now, uh, again, um, all of us tend to think that because I'm so in charge of like what, uh, what will make me sexually happy or unhappy, um, I don't really need to have any sort of boundaries, or if I get in a moment where, you know, um, it's starting to get too far. I'll know. I'll know in the moment how far is too far. But, I mean, from these stories, hopefully what you've seen is we don't have kind of this level of self-awareness and control um, over this area of our lives. The best time for boundaries is now. And so let me just be super practical with this. Um, if you're married and you desire to have a marriage where you are faithful and committed to one another for life. Let me tell you when the worst time to develop boundaries is. The worst time to develop boundaries is after, for six weeks, you've taken an unusual interest in a female coworker that you find attractive, but you won't tell anybody that you find attractive, and you guys are starting to kind of have lunch, and you don't really tell your spouse about it, or you leave out the detail that it's just you two, it's not just everybody. Okay, that's the worst time to figure out how far is too far. If you're dating, and like you want to have a really, like a sexually pure dating relationship. Now, I understand when I say that, like, I sound like an antiquated um, grandpa and like, yay, abstinence. And you're like, um, you know, I'm not sure if I want, look, I, I understand that. But I mean, I'll tell you, I, I mean, I think that there's something to be said for reserving like the ultimate act of physical commitment, sex, uh, until the ultimate act of lifestyle commitment, marriage. I, I mean, I just, you know, it seems like a little bit rational to me, at least. Um, if, if that's a desire for you, like the worst time to figure out how far is too far in your dating relationship is like when you guys are alone, cuddling, watching a movie, blanket, okay? Like just being super practical with you. If you're a single girl and you have a desire like not to hook up with random guys, and again, I'm not trying to sound like this kind of like weird, you know, I understand. We're like, we're in the most sexually active generation that's ever lived and all that. Um, but look, I mean, I just think, like, you're too precious to be doing that. You are made in the image of God, and you are a daughter of the king. I don't think you're meant to be just, like, used and dispensed for somebody's physical pleasure. I think you're more precious than that. And so if that's a desire of your heart, which I really hope it is, like, the worst time for you to figure out how far is too far is when you've had too many drinks at the bar, and you're surrounding yourself with guys that have no desire to respect your physical boundaries. Like, if you're the single guy that wants to, you know, kill the porn addiction and not look at porn. Now, again, it's like, every, I know everybody does it, and I sound like, you know, the biggest loser challenge. You, but I'm telling you, like, even if you take the entire spiritual element out of it, which I think is a really important element, but I mean, if you just look at it from a purely psychological perspective, I mean, it's unbelievably destructive, and there's unbelievable consequences, and it, it really is an incredible step towards forfeiting authentic intimacy and distorting rea- re- realistic understanding of what sex is. I'm telling you, like, if you desire that, which I think is a really noble desire, the worst time to figure out how far is too far is when you're, like, alone at 1 a.m. and everybody else has gone to bed and you're, like, surfing the web, okay? And so the right time, like, if this is something that you want to do, the right time to figure out boundaries is now. It's today. It's this week. It's with your city group. It's with your friends. It's with your spouse. It's an open and honest conversation. It might be awkward, uh, but it's better than the awkwardness of making a serious sexual mistake uh, where you just say, like, okay, here are the boundaries I'm going to set up. Here's the win. Here's what I'm not going to do. And and here's the win. You know, if you're married, okay, like, what makes you comfortable in terms of communicating with other women? You know, how do I make you feel like my standard of beauty? I mean, I'm telling you, I would just encourage you maybe to, have a, to think with yourself, to have a good conversation, and to establish some boundaries. The worst time to figure them out is in the moment. The second is this. 
is I would challenge you to have a vision for the consequences. Have a vision for the consequences. Again, you know, all the music that's talking about sex and love and, you know, man, again, I'm trying not to sound like this old grandpa, like these kids today with their rap music. I'm not trying to be like that. But like, I mean, you know, like Usher tells us that like all that matters is tonight. But I mean, for you to be happy, like you need to have a vision, not just for tonight, but like the next morning and the next week and the next month and the, and the coming years. And like, you need to have a vision for kind of like, are these sexual decisions going to lead to my flourishing or to my destruction in the coming days and months and years, and even, even generations? In fact, I saw a great example of this. Um, I, I was reading an article this week in the New York Times, and it was written by a lady who had an affair. She was writing this article, and she said that um, a friend of hers who was contemplating having an affair came to her and was like, do you think it's a good idea for me to have an affair? And here's, what she, here's how she responded. It's kind of a long quote, but I think it's really good. She said to her, here's my, here's my guess. It's like, what you're feeling is you're unappreciated, you're uh, physically unfulfilled, you feel like this will make you happy, you feel like you deserve this. And here's what she writes. She says, I'm not saying these things aren't legitimate. These feelings aren't legitimate. Just that they don't legitimize what you're doing. If you believe they did, your stomach wouldn't drop on your way out the door to your lovers. You wouldn't feel the need to shower before climbing into the marital bed after liaison. You wouldn't feel like a train had struck you in the back when your son asked you uh, why you forgot his lacrosse game the other day. The great sex, by the way, is a given. When you have an affair, you already know you will have passionate sex. The urgency, newness, and illicit nature of the affair uh, practically guarantees that. What you don't know, or perhaps what you don't allow yourself to think about, is that your life will become an unbearable mix of yearning and regrets because of it. I heard somebody else this week talking about this, and he said that he got so sick of seeing all of his friends kind of like justify them going into having an affair, and he was kind of like, He's like, just, he, he basically concluded, like, we just don't act rationally when it comes to sex. Like, that was just what he concluded. And he said, in order to kind of, like, help him um, to, from making the exact same decision again, he sat down and he actually wrote the 25 worst things that would happen to him and the people he loved the most if he made that same decision to have an affair. And I'll tell you, you have to do the exact same thing. I'm not even saying that, like, that sort of fear needs to be your primary motivation for making the right decisions, but I think you do need to be aware of the consequences. I would say if you're married... And if you're in a place right now where, like, I mean, you're attracted to somebody who's not your wife, have you thought about the consequences if you follow through with that? Have you thought about the consequences if you're dating, I mean, about the way you guys handle sexuality? Have you thought if you're single, like, what sort of future it creates if, if you don't handle sex in accordance with the wisdom of God? Have you even, like, contemplated that or thought about that? Again, everything kind of in our culture says, think about tonight. But, but the Bible says, think about your future and think about your legacy and think about coming generations. And what sort of story is it that you are going to write? So we've got to think also about um, the consequences. Now, third is this, and this is my favorite thing to talk about. I'm so excited about this. When sin is most ugly, God's grace is most beautiful. Let me say it again. When sin is most ugly, God's grace is most beautiful. Now, um, here's what I know when I give this talk, and here's why I want to be particularly sensitive, is I know um, that it's foolish for me to like, sit in this room with the most sexually active generation in world history, pretty much, and be like, you know, don't ever do this. I mean, the reality is, is like, most of us have done it. 
Can we just be honest? Like most of us have done it. We have not been sexually pure. That, that is not the story of the majority of the people in this room. And even for me, um, I have been very transparent from the stage talking about how that's my story as well. My teens, my early 20s, I made all sorts of terrible sexual decisions. So like if you think I'm pointing the finger as the perfect guy, I am a mess, absolute, absolute mess, and uh, somehow redeemed and restored by the grace of God. And I'm telling you, there is nothing. If you've walked through that, if you've experienced that, if you have regrets and you've made sexual mistakes, I'm telling you, nothing hurts Nothing sticks to you. Nothing impales your soul quite like sexual mistakes, do they? They leave you wondering, you know, am I damaged goods? Is this person um, going to, to continue to love me and be committed to me when they find out what I've done? Have I forfeited the opportunity for authentic intimacy uh, with my spouse in the future because I've done this and this and this and this in the past? I'm telling you, the majority of you have wrestled with those questions as you're trying to fall asleep at night, and they're unbelievably frightening. And this is where it's just such good news, is that the gospel of Jesus Christ, the belief that Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, goes to the cross to take on every sin that you and I have committed, not only forgives us, but cleanses us, makes us whiter than snow. In fact, 1 John 1.9 says this, that Jesus is faithful not only to forgive, but to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That when Jesus Christ, if you're a follower of Jesus, or if you want to become a follower of Jesus tonight, in that moment that you receive his forgiveness, that his, the death is for you, what it is proclaiming is in that moment 2,000 years ago when he was crucified in your place on the cross, that he was bearing all of your sin, all of your shame, everything that you've done, everything that's been done to you, He has separated you from those mistakes as far as the East is separated from the West. And where the proper implications then of the gospel for our sexuality is if you've made mistakes, you are not damaged goods. You are a new creation. What it means that if you're a follower of Jesus is you are not doomed to a failed marriage where you always have to get second best because you didn't always handle sex in God's way. I mean, you can completely forgiven, completely restored, completely having the opportunity to walk a life in the newness of Christ. I'll tell you, it's one of those areas where just the beauty of grace becomes so unbelievably, tangibly real. And it cleanses the most frightening terrifying, off-limits regions of our souls. And I'm telling you that as somebody who's experienced it firsthand, and, and many of you have as well. And so I would just tell you, the way to overcome your sexual past is not, you know, joking it away. It's not pretending that it's not there. It's not hiding it from everybody else telling you it's accepting the grace of Jesus Christ and knowing he makes you whiter than snow he restores relationships he restores broken sexuality he restores marriages and he is beautiful and so we want to close we want to close praying and celebrating Jesus we want to make the right decisions we want we're empowered by the gospel to handle our sexuality with with unbelievable wisdom from this day forward because because the Holy Spirit, he lives inside us and empowers us to live rightly and in line with the truths that we've learned tonight. 
But more than anything, we want to celebrate not what we'll do this week, but what Jesus did 2,000 years ago that gives us hope for a topic as frightening as this. All right, let's pray. God, we love you so much. We thank you for the grace of the gospel that cleanses the most difficult aspects of our lives. And what I would pray is that for the men and women in this room, rather than running off, I hope this isn't harsh, but arrogant, saying that I'm in complete control of this very personal area of your life, that they would let your wisdom spill into and shape and conform their sexuality. Sex is an incredible gift from you. And no belief system or philosophy in the world has a higher view of sex than Christianity. And God, I pray that we would understand that you have given us this gift, that we would steward and handle it correctly. And for those of us who haven't, people just like me, that we would not walk in guilt or shame, but in the redemptive, restorative grace of Jesus Christ. We're looking forward to celebrating and recognizing that. We love you, and we thank you for all you've done. We ask all these things in your name. Amen.